the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our Ben told me I had a Texas aura about me this morning. And so, so as any Texan, I have to tell you, I am from Texas, okay? Um, just so you know, okay, just in case you didn't get that. I might mention it like six more times during this message, but, but that's okay, that's okay. Um, anyways, when I met Nick the first time, see, I had heard about this, this thing called the Midwestern vibe, kind of, and it's, it's a very blunt vibe, okay? Now, in Texas, we have this thing called kind of Southern hospitality, Southern charm, uh, where, where we will not tell you we do not like you, or we will not say we don't like something, we'll just do the bless your heart or something like that. Okay, um, so we do that, and so as I'm meeting with Nick, I didn't know you were nervous. Actually, that's the funny thing. I was just excited. I was like, "Hey, I get to go meet with this guy. This is gonna be fun." And, and so I get there and I bring him some gifts. Okay, some things that, that I have made. You you remember this part, okay? And this is my favorite part about it. Um, our our organization has not given the best stuff in the past, like stuff you'd even want to wear. Okay, so. So I, I was not privy to this, but I did when I came up and interviewed, they gave me like this man purse, okay? <laughs> and it, it, was, it was strange. I found one in the basement yesterday and I actually played a prank on someone and gave it to them. Um, but anyways, it was like this, this weird looking, it was supposed to be like a satchel, but all you, you couldn't fit a laptop or an iPad in it. So I was like, what is this for? So I used it like, like to carry Frisbee golf discs and that was still weird. But at least it was some use. I was like, okay. And then the other one, my wife got, I just gave it to my daughter because she was like, what is this? So anyways, I, I give him this. And, and as, as we're leaving, he just puts it inside. I'm like, okay. So I, I'm getting ready and we're leaving. All of a sudden, Nick bolts out the door. I'm like, what's he, did I do something wrong? Like, is he mad at me? Is, is, am I about to get the Midwest vibe here? And he's like, dude, you got us nice stuff. I was firmly ready to go throw this stuff in the trash as soon as you left. I'm going to wear it. Ever since then, Nick, I've loved you, man. I've loved you. <laughs> that was greatness. I will always remember that. That was like seared into my mind. I was like, that is hilarious. So anyways, me and my wife moved up here, okay, with our three kids. We got a 10 an eight and a six year old. If I look like I'm struggling to remember that, it's because they hit these ages at weird times and my 10 year old's really like nine and two months, nine, nine and 11 months, but we don't keep up with time like that. So I just change it to 10, okay? Um, 10, eight and six, Ace, Miles and Lorelei. Okay, they're, they're at our home church in Springfield this morning. Uh, they're worshiping there. Uh, a lot of times I don't take them with me because I don't tell them, hey, you gotta get up at like six to get ready and go to church. I, I want them to relax a little bit and enjoy church. And sometimes whenever they travel with me, it's exhausting. Uh, so they're there. We moved up here just out of the conviction of God, honestly. We had had a burden for the Midwest, and we don't know where that came from, guys, because literally, we grew up in Texas. That's the second time I've told you. Um, we were raised there, born there, lived there. We're living 30 minutes away from grandparents. Like, we were in where we thought God was like, hey, this is going to be where you stay forever in ministry. That's what we thought, okay? As soon as you think things, a lot of times God goes, no, I'm going to throw you this weird curveball. So we started having a burden for the Midwest. And so we're thinking, okay, the Midwest. Okay. All right, the Midwest, corn. All right, we can do this. 
But we're not, we're not, at this point, we didn't know where in the Midwest. We're just kind of like, we're thinking of all the places that are kind of, guys, Central Illinois is not sexy. Let's be honest. It's okay. <laughs> all right? It's not. When I drive it, it's flat. That's it. Okay? And so we're thinking, oh, maybe it'll be like Indianapolis. I think that's about it. Like, we were just like, oh, maybe Indianapolis. Some, there was a little bit of Iowa idea, but I don't know why. And, and, and we were just thinking, like, God, where are you going to use this? And then all of a sudden, it was Illinois. And we're like, huh? Oh, that is the Midwest. Okay. So we got on it. We actually love Illinois, okay? We're excited about being here. We are thrilled about living in Illinois. I know. I get it. Most people are like, what is, what's wrong with y'all? No, we love it. We're excited. I even bought a hat that has Illinois on it just because I love living in Illinois, okay? So that's kind of us. We came from that, that culture. We have come here. We really enjoy living here, and I'm gl- grateful to have you as a friend, Nick. It, is, it has been a blessing. I remember this being a dream, okay? This, he was living in the house, and this being a dream, and now seeing this come to fruition is very exciting. Um, so I'm not just here to tell you all about me, okay? We're here to dig into Nehemiah 3. Okay, and so we're going we're gonna to read that, but I'm going to kind of give cliff notes as, as we're going through. So in Nehemiah, literally cliff notes, like I'm not going deep real quick, okay, for just a second. Okay, so Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. That means that he could die if the king got poisoned. Okay, he would die first. He was on that, that line, okay. He wants to go and rebuild Jerusalem. He gets permission from the king. They are now going to go and rebuild the gates and the wall around it. Um, He also surveys, he tells people to rebuild. Three guys are upset that he's rebuilding, and then he says, well, God's going to prosper us, okay? So that's where we're at. That's where we're starting today. Now, a lot of times there are passages where you're going to go, you're going to read as a Christian, you're going to go, what in the world? This is one of those passages, you're going to start digging into it and you're going to go, wow, that's got a lot of people building a lot of different places. You're also going to be amazed if I get all the names right. That will be another thing that you'll be amazed by. And I promise you I will not. But the thing is, you're going to sit there and as we read it, you're going to be going, okay, man, I hope this guy brings some good stuff. And I'm going to try to because this is God's word. It is living, it is active, and it is exciting. But there are times where you actually have to dig into it to see what God's talking about. So if you'll rise with me real quick, we're gonna read chapter three. I'm gonna try to go decently fast because some of y'all will be tired of standing, but we're gonna go for it. Starting in verse one, the high priest, Elishab, and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. They dedicated and installed its doors. After building the wall to the tower of the hundred and to the tower of Hananel, they dedicated it. The men of Jericho built next to Elishab and next to Zakur, son of Emri, built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, made repairs. Beside them, Meshalem, son of Berechiah, son of Meshalazabeb, See, I told you I'd mess it up. Made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Banna, made repairs. Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. Jehodias, son of Paseah, and Meshalamah, son of Basodia, repaired the old gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, the repairs were done by Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Maranathite, 
And the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, who were under the authority of the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River. After him, Uziel, son of Herahiah, the goldsmiths made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, son of the perfumer, made repairs. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. After them, Jedidiah, son of Haramath, made repairs across from his house. Next to him, Hattush, the son of ha- Hashabaniah, made repairs. Malachijah, son of Haram, and Hasab, son of Pahath Moab made repairs to another section, as well as the tower of ovens. Beside him, Shalom, son of Halahash, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, made repairs. He and his daughters, Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah, repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts and bars, and repaired 500 yards of the wall to the dung gate. That's kind of funny. Okay. Um, Malchijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hacherim repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Shalon, son of Kolhazah, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and roofed it. Then he installed its doors, bolts, and bars. He also made repairs to the wall of the pool of Shelah near the kingdom's gar- king's garden as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth Ashur, made repairs up to the point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and the house of the warriors. Next to him, the Levites made repairs under Rahim, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half district of Keilah, made repairs for his district. After him, their fellow Levites made repairs under Banu, son of Hinnadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, made repairs to another section opposite the ascent of the armory at the angle. We're almost there, guys. After him, Barak, son of Zabbai, diligently repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of the high priest of Elishib. Beside him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, made repairs for another section from the door of Elishib's house to the end of his house. And next to him, the priest from the surrounding area made repairs after him, Benjamin and Hasha made repairs opposite their house. Beside them, Azariah, son of Maashai, son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. After him, Benu, son of Hinnadab, made repairs to another section from the house of Azariah to the angle and the corner. Palalil, son of Uzziah, made repairs opposite the angle and tower that juts out from the king's upper palace by the courtyard of the guard. Beside him, Pedadiah, son of Parish, and the temple servants living on Ophel made repairs opposite the water gate toward the east and the tower that juts out. Next to him, the Tekoites made repairs to another section from the point opposite the great tower that juts out as far as the wall of Ophel. Each of the priests made repairs above the horse gate, each opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, son of Emer, made repairs opposite his house. And beside him, Shemamiah, son of Shechaniah, guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, made repairs to another section. After them, Meshalum, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his room. Next to him, Malachijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs to the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the upstairs room on the corner. The goldsmiths and merchants made repairs between the upstairs room on the corner and the sheep gate. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, even when we read it, 
and we don't, we don't get it. It is active. It is living. God, I pray that your, your word would be a breath of life to all, the, all those in here this morning, God. Don't let it be my words. God, but let it be your active word, Father. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this, this, these people gathered here, God. In your name I pray, amen. If you wanna know why I'm so excited, guys, when I go out and preach, normally I am in like slacks and a button-up shirt and everyone is old, so having young people here, it's really exciting, okay? So if I seem kind of jittery, that's why. Uh, I'm kind of just feeding off your energy right now, okay? Um, the thing is, how many of y'all got deep truth out of that passage? Okay, we have like, got one, okay, two. A lot of times when we read Old Testament scripture and a lot of times whenever it's instructions, we don't get to dig in a lot of times and we don't get to see what God is doing. Okay, I, I remember sitting in a seminary class one time and they were talking about the Exodus, okay? And one of the questions that came up was, man, why, why are there so many laws and things like that? Why, why is this all about this stuff? Or why is God, why is it happening to where we just kind of read some exciting parts where the, Isra the Egyptians are getting smoted and then all of a sudden we get to the boring part where they're walking? I know I use smoted, that's kind of fun, okay? Um, and then all of a sudden, this professor was like, guys, sometimes we look at things strange and we go, okay, this is about... God freeing his people instead of looking at this as God doing a mission trip to Egypt. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? I'm like, how, how was he doing a mission trip to Egypt? And it was like, he was like, well, he goes down, he proclaims his name and he takes his people out. So what do you do on a mission trip? You, you go somewhere, you proclaim God's name and you leave. And I'm like, that is a different lens that I've never thought about that in. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at this text, but I want you to focus on a few things and I'm gonna give you a lens to look at it. We're looking at God's glory in this. We're not worried about what gate was built, what place was what. I'm not gonna give you any kind of idea. The only gate you need to know about is the sheep gate because that's where the sacrifices would come in. That's it, that's the only gate you need to really know about. The tower of ovens does not have a special meaning. It was a tower of ovens. They made bread there, okay? I'm not gonna try to make something crazy, but it's the bread of life or something weird like that. It was just a tower that they made bread at, okay? But the thing is, one thing if you look at, everyone was working, okay? This is interesting because we just read this long list. I was running out of saliva by the end of it with all the names, but everyone was working. The only instance you saw anything different was this one section where it was talking about the people, the, the uh, royals or the nobles would not work. They would not stoop to work for their masters basically. Now the reason that was going on was somebody else actually governed that section. Okay, remember the guys I said they were mad about them rebuilding? One of them governed the section so the nobles would not go work in fear of the fact that they would offend the person who was actually ruling over them. Other than that, everyone's working from different places, from different peoples. They're coming to restore Jerusalem. Sometimes we think, okay, I've read through this. I get it. Everyone's working. Why does that apply to us? Why, do, why does something built hundreds, thousands of years ago apply to us? And I, I want you to understand this, guys. We are God's people, the church. We should all be working, okay? Now, 
I don't want this to be a guilt trip message where you feel like, oh man, I've got to, I have to go sign up for everything that Nick wants me to do now. That is not what this is. But we all have gifts. And when you don't use your gifts in God's body with God's people, there's a part missing. That's what I want you to understand from this. Could you imagine if I read this passage and all of a sudden it said like, Hannon and somebody else, some other crazy name, that they did not build where they were at. What would happen? Like, because we have to understand, the wall was a protection from the outside. So if, if half of it or part of it doesn't get built, is that good for strategic defenses? No, you just, I mean, the army would just go, oh, we're gonna go in this way. This is easy. There would be nothing to protect them. And what I'm trying to say with this, guys, just like the wall would be missing a part, the church is missing a part when you're not serving, when you're not active. If you think about it, whenever we sit there and we talk about work and things like that, guys, you have to remember, I, I, was, I did college ministry a bunch, okay? And so whenever I would ask students, this was my favorite, and this is gonna be mainly to students right now, and some parents will get this too. Um, I would ask them, hey, well, what do you wanna do? The first thing they would say if they didn't want to do anything was what? I'm what? Come on, y'all can answer. Thank you. Even you knew it. That's easy. Busy. I'm busy. How many of you used that excuse before? Guys, it's okay. I've used the excuse, okay? Everyone has said it. We've all said, I'm busy. And if we look at our lives, we might be a little busy. We might be but there's always something we can do. We're not, I'm not telling you you need to go move a mountain. I'm telling you you need to put your gift to service. That's what you need to do, okay? Nick's job as, as one of the pastors here is to help you do that. That's part of discipleship. That's part of that process. Everyone was working. The next thing that I kind of want to talk about with that Okay, everyone working. The next thing that we would get was that no idea where to serve, but then there's an apathy sometimes that builds in. There's a, well, I haven't been serving. I'm just coming here, so therefore I will just be here. Okay, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it to a family real quick, okay? When you're a, a family, okay, whenever you have your mom, your dad, everybody's there, if you're not there, is everything normal? Is it? No, no. If, you're, if you gather for Christmas and you're missing one, does it feel weird? Yeah, it does. So what I'm saying is sometimes in the church we feel this apathy of like, oh, well, I just show up, I just do this, I'm here. And then we kind of draw back or we pull away a little bit. Or we come every now and then or we come whenever we feel like we can. So I'm gonna tell you, if your family was functioning like that, it's functioning in dysfunction. So whenever you're in the church body, you don't wanna function out of dysfunction. It goes back to this wall idea, guys. If the wall was built crooked, would the wall fall real easily? Yeah. So whenever the church body gathers, we all work together but we're all sitting there and we're all going about doing the same thing and we're about to get to what we are doing, okay? God, point number two, God's people coming together to finish a task, okay? So, so they came together to do what? Build the what? 
the wall, okay? That's what they were doing, okay? This is not a political rally, okay? But they were building the walls of Jerusalem. Yes, I said that because I am goofy, okay? They were building the walls of Jerusalem. And so all of a sudden, that's the task they've come for. What is the task we are tasked with as Christians, okay? And I'm gonna turn you to it, Matthew 28. Everyone turn there real quick. Matthew 28, we're going to start in verses 18. This is our task. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have one task. As Christians, we come together to finish that task. Our job is to do what? Go and make disciples. That's it. There is no other task. There is no fighting about theology task that we have to have. Should we have good theology? Should we have biblical theology? 100%. But fighting and arguing over it does not help us complete the task. If you would have looked in this passage in every section, I was having to read three other names about arguing about another guy that was building the wall a little different than what they wanted to build the wall. What would that have accomplished? Not building the wall. We have to look at what our task is. Our task is to make disciples. Nothing else. Go ye therefore and make disciples. This is the exciting thing. Some of you guys sitting in this room, you might be called to church planting. Some of you might be working more intimately in church planting one day. Some of you might be going back to another country or to another country. Our job though is still the same. It's to make disciples. It doesn't change by your placement or where God puts you. That's the one thing. Christians are at their best when we agree on this and move forward. Do we all do it differently? Yeah. But do we have to fight about it while we do it differently? No. Go make disciples. Point three, does your service inspire others? Now this is an interesting one. If you look in verse 20, okay, And this is a very small detail that you will miss if you do not look at this. After him, Barak, son of Zabai, diligently repaired another section from the angle of the door to the house of the high priest Eliashib. Read the whole thing again if you want to. It says nothing about anybody else's work. This one guy, it literally says he repaired it diligently. Think about that. Like if you're, if you're in the Bible, okay, would you want to have this verse about you or would you want to just be one of the guys that, hey, he hung the dung gate or whatever it is? Which one would you want to have? Would you want to be noticed by somebody else? Because he's not sitting there going, hey, guys, look at my work. Look at this wall. It's really pretty. I did the best wall, the best, biggest wall. It's the perfect wall. He's not doing that. But this oh, Nehemiah is sitting there going, look, he repaired it diligently. So this is coming to this, okay? When you serve in the body of Christ, how does it look? 
What does it look like? How, how do you interact with people? How do you interact with kids or youth or whatever you do? How does it look? Because this is the thing. Our service needs to be inspiring to others. It does not need to look like we're going to a job. How many of y'all have jobs that somewhat you don't like? Okay. Normally in a college room, I get more than that, but it's okay. Okay. And it's kind of mundane, right? You get bored, right? You don't like it. One of the, one of the parts of my job I absolutely hate is contracts. Okay. So they put me over youth evangelism and now I have to deal with people to bring them in and there's contracts. And I mean, long contracts. I think one of them was like, I feel like it was 18 pages of questions I had to answer. And I'm like, I hate this. I'm literally sitting there on a Thursday going through this contract, hating my life at that moment, thinking, is this what it's about? And I I was not thrilled about this contract. I got it done. I was so happy when I was done, but I hated it because it was very mundane. And sometimes at the church, we will try to treat the church mundane. We will try to treat it as if it is the same every, I'm going to church again. I got to serve again. I signed up for it. I've got to do it. We have have that mentality our parents drilled into us of like, we don't ever quit because we started something. That's what mine taught me. If you start something, you don't quit. I'm doing it to my kids now too. But anyways, we get that grilled into us. And so we think, okay, I cannot quit. I have to keep serving and I will keep serving in the most menial ways I can just to get the task done. We give God our leftovers for the week and we don't give him our hearts. This one guy in this passage, no one will ever remember him except for this and they will know that he served full-heartedly. They will know that he was the best repairer of a wall. And it seems mundane, guys, but I don't care where you serve in a church. You should want to be known by how you're glorifying God through your service. Glorify God in everything. Don't give him the junk. Does life get in the way? Yes. Because I ran a half marathon with my wife yesterday. I will be up at 4.30 to go down to Mount Vernon to preach, to teach at a uh, evangelism conference. I was up early this morning and I'm here. Am I tired? Yeah. Starbucks has helped. Okay. Am I sore? Oh yeah. Ibuprofen helped. Okay. That's how I'm walking. But the thing is, we've got to be giving everything to the Lord. Your right lens of looking through things whenever we're serving God is number one, does it glorify God? If you have a family, you need to go and does it honor my family? But the first lens is, is it glorifying God? Is your service glorifying God or would you just go, man, I'm just winging it sometimes. I just don't, I don't really show it. I'm not really happy. What is it? Lastly, number four, when we sit on this side of the cross, we get to see something a little different that others don't see that saw it before. We get to look at it in light of the cross. So we get to see this. So I want y'all to look in Jeremiah 31 real quick because the thing is, this actually has a profound meaning that if we sit there and we don't look at it, we miss it completely. We're gonna start in verse 27. 
Okay, if you read the whole thing, it's amazing. But for time's sake, I'm going to start in 27. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of people and the seed of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and to tear them down, to demolish and to destroy and to cause disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant them. This is the Lord's declaration. In those days, it will never again be said, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Rather, each will die for his own iniquity. Anyone who eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them out of the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration, I will put my teachings within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people No longer will one teach his neighbor or brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. I almost only just have to read that. Jeremiah who was there before they were taken off and there during their taking off is now talking about the time he will bring them back and restore them. And it doesn't stop at the rebuilding. It stops with this new covenant that's coming. We live in the new covenant. We live within it. We live within the gospel. The gospel is very simple, guys, and sometimes we try to confuse it and we try to make it harder, but the gospel is simply God sending his son Jesus to live a perfect life, 100% God, 100% man, dying on the cross for our sins, being raised from the dead, and all we have to do is profess and believe. That's it. It's not hard. We make it harder, and sometimes we make it uh, very cheap. Sometimes we go, oh, you just have to profess and believe. And we, we think that a prayer will save us, or we think that, that something, a magical feeling in a moment will save us, but the gospel is the power to save. That's it. Those things. Now, we can get into the idea of professing and believing. What does believing look like? Believing's very easy to figure out. We all believe that there's oxygen in this room, correct? None of us brought oxygen mask to church this morning. None of us are scared that the oxygen will shut off. None of us are living in that fear. So belief is a life. If you think about it in that term, belief is actually living a life towards Christ. It's not going, oh, I believe it, and then doing whatever you want all the time never listening to his word, never digging into his word, never getting involved in a church. Belief is your life being placed in Christ. We can all profess Jesus is Lord, but do we all believe? Do our lives reflect Christ? 
We're going to pray real quick, and Nick's going to come up, and the band's going to come up. And I just want you to think about it. Think about these things. Also, I want you thinking about, man, that passage, it seemed dull when he read it. But man, God's word is active and living. It's not dull. So let's pray real quick as they come up. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word, God. It is, it's perfect. God, while my words are imperfect, I'm so thankful that yours are perfect. Lord, I just pray during this time of reflection, God, if there are those who don't know you, God, if they would come ask staff or come ask Nick or, or just come talk to somebody about like, who is this Jesus and what is he talking about? And most of all, I want them to have a passion for your word, a passion to live it out. Passion to see the campus of U of I, the passion uh, to see Champaign-Urbana transformed by your word. God, I thank you for your word. In your name I pray. Amen.